Now let us join together receiving this word from the Lord coming from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of the us possess knowledge. Knowledge pops up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called idols in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many idols and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols. So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is the cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, we're finally getting through January. And this is uh, it's kind of a big deal. We made it through a month. Now I have to ask, how many of you have kept your New Year's resolutions if you made them? <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and confess. I kept one of mine. Here's a hint. It's not the one that had to do with sweets. <laughs> it wasn't the Oreos. No, wait, it actually was the Oreos. Dang it. My wife made an awesome cheesecake. I'm going to blame this on her. She made an awesome cheesecake, but she did use the Oreos for the crust. So I guess it was the Oreos that uh, led me to falter on that. But I've kept, I've kept another one, so I feel pretty good about that. Uh, yeah, I really thought I'd be able to at least make it through January, but I didn't. But here we are. We are, we are finally at the end of January. And we acknowledge that, you know, seeing the month that we've already come through, and holy cow, what a month it has been, that with a new year comes also new and sometimes old challenges, things that still lie before us. A new year doesn't mean a perfect year. It's not a year of ease, a year of tranquility necessarily, 
but it is a year still that we have potential, possibilities to engage in. And so that's kind of what we've been looking at through this, uh, through this entire series is making the most of the year that is before us. And as we have been considering what that looks like, we arrive now today at the question of how do we now continue into this year? Taking this resolution of following Christ throughout this year on into the month of February, and then into March, and then into April, and May, and all the way through this year, and then by the grace of God, all the way through the rest of our lives. But in order to get there, we do have to acknowledge that there are challenges before us, that our journey as Christians does not suddenly end when we encounter Christ. Uh, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon you see in the church every so often. Uh, Whenever a church, and I don't necessarily mean like a, a local church, but just a community of believers get stagnant, it's usually because they feel like we've kind of finished our journey. We're done. What else is there to do? We'll, we'll keep showing up to church on Sunday mornings, and we'll come to the occasional Bible study. And, you know, if there's a mission project, we'll donate to it or help out or something like that. But... But, you know, that's, that's pretty good, right? Like, we can, we can just stop right there. And yet, one thing that Jesus continues to challenge his disciples throughout their time together, and their time together wasn't very long, three years-ish is not a very long time, but what Jesus encourages his disciples to see is that just because they found Jesus, just because Jesus is in their life in a very real and significant presence, doesn't mean that all of a sudden they're good. They can just sit back, sipping on an iced tea, just call it a day. In fact, when they encountered Christ, their journey only just began. And believe it or not, their journeys didn't finish at one point in their life. It's not like, you know, Peter, Peter was already kind of up in age there, but it's not like Peter hit 65. I don't think he actually made it to 65, but don't quote me on that. But it's not like Peter hit 65. He's like, I'm kind of retiring from ministry now, so somebody else do this for me. He kept going until, and like I said, I don't think he ever hit 65. That would have been pretty amazing. Until all of a sudden, you know, he was crucified for the things that he was teaching. All of the disciples end up getting scattered across the world, and their ministry doesn't end. Their journey doesn't end with that. It doesn't end with the resurrected Christ. It doesn't end whenever they get scattered about. It doesn't end after they plant their first church. It keeps going to the end of their life. Meeting Christ in our life is only the beginning of the journey. So, what's that next chunk? The real story. What's that all about? Because Jesus says that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, one must be born anew. This is very powerful language because what happens whenever you are born? You are suddenly thrust into a journey that we all call life, and you have X amount of years that that journey takes place in, and so this new birth that Christ talks about is one that, that then welcomes us into a whole new journey. And the journey is different this time because 
we no longer make it all about me. I'm not sure how many of you have had the opportunity recently to be around a, uh, a young child. Um, Chris and I, we have a couple in our lives that we uh, encounter with pretty frequently, uh, but I'm talking about a child like below the age of five-ish. Uh, in, in psychology and in child development, that stage kind of between like two and five uh, it can expand out, is called the egocentric stage of child development. It is this moment in a child's life where the whole world revolves around them. That thing is mine. I want it. Actually, it's I need it. I need that cookie. Mine. Me. All about me. And this is kind of... Uh, Paul, who is the author of our text today, plays on this little theme in, uh, in a child's life where, where it's all about me. And he says, you know, as, as infants, you know, we once thought one way, but as we grow up, and once again, he's talking metaphorically here in the Christian journey, once we grow up, we start to realize that the whole it's all about me thing doesn't get us very far. And it's not a very productive way to live our lives. Even children end up recognizing this, especially by the time they get into school, they start recognizing Oh, it's kind of important if we start talking about us rather than me, and even sometimes start talking about you rather than just me. It becomes important that there is a collective mentality. And so, this is where we kind of break ground on the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul, the apostle, who was not a disciple, um, Paul ends up going around the Greco-Roman world planting churches. And he gets to this place in Corinth where he plants a church and he teaches them all that he has learned and establishes them as a community of faith to support one another and grow. And they do. They grow pretty quickly. And they grow pretty effectively. And they do pretty well. Paul is pretty proud of the uh, church in Corinth. I say pretty proud. There are some moments, like this moment here, that Paul isn't thrilled about. You see, at one point in Paul's ministry, after the church in Corinth has been established, the, the church writes to him and says, we've got some questions for you. We're not quite sure how to handle this because there's been some tension in our community. And they kind of list out all of these things that have been tensions. And 1 Corinthians is a response to this letter. So recognize everything that Paul's talking about here is something that the church in Corinth had a question about. And one of these questions is, so some of us who've been around a little while longer, some of us who are like, you know, the first people you talk to have been noticing that some of the newer people don't quite get it. But yet, those new people think that we don't quite get it. And all of a sudden, there's this faction, this division that shows up in this community of faith. And it's over something that we might have a hard time relating to. Food sacrificed to idols. This isn't something we really encounter all that much in our lives today. We don't really go to the Taco Bell and ask, yes, who did you sacrifice your food to this morning? To be perfectly honest, it's Taco Bell. I don't mind. Whatever you've been sacrificing it to, give me that cheesy gordito crunch. But this is, you know, it's not something that's pretty common in our life to be thinking about 
idol sacrifice. It's not really something that happens. In fact, we don't really have actual what, what, what would be called idols in uh, biblical times around us. We do have idols in our life that can be anything like consumerism or fame or, you know, I don't know, we throw out uh, a billion of them right now. But, but it's a little bit different here because we don't really have that same mentality. But, so, in order to give you just a little bit of context, we're in the Greco-Roman world. The Roman Empire is everywhere. And part of, the, uh, part of the Roman Empire was that, you know, you didn't really have to ascribe to one single religion, but it helped if you did ascribe to some religion because they found that religion had, gave some sort of order into people's lives. And so what ended up happening is uh, you end up getting the Hall of the Gods established, the Hall of the Idols uh, there end up being hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of idols that get established for various different things. I mean, you name it. Uh, if, you, if you can think of it, if there was probably an idol to the dust bunny under my bed at one point in time. I, w I would imagine that would be something that people would want to pray to. We don't really see that today, but just understand this is the context that we're in. And so part of this culture, uh, which is pretty prevalent in, uh, in these societies during this time, is that you would make sacrifices to them. And you would make sacrifices of some amount of value. That's why it's called a sacrifice. You, you have to give it up. And so meat was pretty common sacrifice because meat had quite a bit of value during this time. You couldn't just go to the local uh, Walmart market and pick up a, a you know, pound of ground beef uh, like like you can today in this day and age. And so, as people made these sacrifices, sometimes there would end up being too many sacrifices. There's too much meat that's being uh, sacrificed here. And so, it became the practice that the priests of whatever idol temple, whatever god temple is going on here, would then be able to keep that meat for themselves, eat it themselves. And then, as more and more meat and other sacrifices kept showing up, the priest realized, well, we could also sell this meat, make a little bit extra money, and be good, and sell it at a discount price so people might buy this more. And so that's what ends up happening. The priest ends up selling off all of the extra meat that gets acquired through all the sacrifices, and people would buy this up because it's discount meat. It's the Walmart savings meat. It might not be your favorite meat, but it's cheap. You had the coupon for it, so you're good. And this ends up being a widely circulated practice. And so whenever you went over to somebody's house for dinner and they had, I don't know, uh, beef stew going on here, you could probably assume they made that with meat that was once sacrificed to an idol. Now... A lot of context here I'm having to throw out and I apologize, but now understand, new Christians that are coming up in this time in the Greco-Roman Empire are having to give up the notion that there are all of these gods and all of these idols that matter and go to there is only one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit which sustains us. And so this is like a pivotal point, right? You're having to... to sacrifice something of your old identity in order to ascribe to this new thing that's more meaningful to you. And so, 
as these new Christians were coming up, they started seeing some of the older Christians who had been around for a while eating with people who bought meat that was sacrificed to idols. And they say, hold on, I don't think you should do that because that's, that wasn't for Jesus. Like you're, by eating that, you're kind of saying this idol is still a real thing. And the older Christians are like, no, that's not how it works. We have freedom in Christ. We know there aren't other idols and other gods. We eat this because it's been offered to us and it's, you know, it's a very kind gesture and everything. But the newer ones are still trying to figure out life. And so Paul sets up this moment here in which he's saying, you all who have been Christians for a while, you have an opportunity to set an example for the younger Christians, for the people who are still trying to figure out their faith. You may know that, you, that it's perfectly fine to eat whatever you want. That's kind of the conclusion that both, both Paul and Peter come to. There isn't unclean food anymore. You don't have to worry about what you eat. You may know this. You may have this knowledge. However, recognize that that knowledge hasn't yet been ingrained in the people who are still learning from you. And so by your actions, you're kind of putting these people into a certain amount of conflict that they weren't initially prepared for. You're setting an example, but the example that you're setting isn't really all that healthy. Now, we have to turn to the concept of knowledge. A little more context here. Uh, Paul here at the beginning writes, now concerning food sacrificed to idols, that's what we've been talking about, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Wonderful, yes. We know that all of us possess knowledge. However, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. So, Paul here is setting up a very important difference in the establishment of the church. And there's one more piece of context that you need to know about all of this. In the Greco-Roman Empire, as, as in, in this culture, there was one thing that was more valuable than anything else, than any amount of gold. Knowledge. Knowledge has, is power. Knowledge is wealth. And in fact, the more knowledge you have, the closer you are to God, was the notion in this culture here, that knowledge was exactly what you needed. And Paul kind of acknowledges, yeah, knowledge is good. It's, it's good to know things. But knowledge puffs up. In other words, knowledge makes people uh, arrogant. If you have so much knowledge, you think all of a sudden you're the most superior person in the world and everybody should listen to what you have to say and all of this stuff. And he's saying the knowledge about what you are speaking, the knowledge about this freedom to eat whatever you want, the knowledge about how these younger Christians don't quite get it yet, all of that knowledge, it's irrelevant. Great, wonderful that you have knowledge. Don't let it make you arrogant. Instead, turn in love. You're setting an example for these others who are trying to follow in your footsteps. And not only for the younger Christians, but also all of the people who have not yet joined into the church who are still watching these leaders in this community. You're setting an example 
but unfortunately, the example that you're setting is that of knowledge. It's, uh, it's very interesting. In, in uh, most churches, most, not all, I can't make this claim about all churches, but most churches, there's usually about two to three people who can quote to you just about every single verse in the Bible. They have a lot of knowledge. And I've encountered these people uh, along my journey. They are the same people who, when you do something wrong, they come up to you and say, well, Philippians 4 says you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Well, I noticed the other day that you did this, and I just want to hearken back to Numbers 32. Why are you reading Numbers? Why are you quoting numbers at me? It's exhausting. But it's, it's, it's the same notion. We have this knowledge, and so it makes us arrogant to say, we know the rules. We know what's right and what's wrong, and we know how to tell you about it. Guess what? Knowledge doesn't really change all that much. Have you ever been in like a political argument with somebody? And you have all the knowledge that you could muster. You like prepared for this argument because you knew you were going into it. And you have all the knowledge about your side, and the person you're arguing with like, is just completely ignorant about everything and doesn't have that same level of knowledge that you do. And you get into this complete argument about this, and you spit out fact after fact after fact, and you're like, boom, mic drop, like, yes, I just changed your whole world. And they're like, no, you didn't. I'm still going to keep thinking the way that I think. Why? Because knowledge doesn't change lives. Yes, it could, and yes, it would be important if we paid attention to wisdom. Now, there's a little di distinction between wisdom and knowledge. But Paul ends up here saying that that whole knowledge that puffs up, that makes people arrogant, it's not as important as love. If you're going to be setting an example for these people who are going to be following you, don't do it in knowledge. It doesn't change people's worlds the way that you might think. Why? Because even though we are very logical and rational creatures, even though over uh, millennia of human development we have what we call the prefrontal cortex right here in our brain that allows us to do logic and reasoning, we, at our core, are still very, very emotional people. And I don't mean like emotional people like we cry at every single movie that we see kind of emotional people. Some of us might be. But I mean emotion triggers us and moves us to change way more than logic and reasoning does. The emotive centers of our brain are much deeper and have much more connections than the rational centers of our brain. And Paul knows this without even knowing what the brain really does entirely in his culture. He knows that logic and reasoning and knowledge isn't going to change the world the same way that love will. Because if you love on somebody, it doesn't really matter how much you know because they know that they are cared for. We have this old saying in seminary that says the people, this is talking to pastors who are preparing to go into ministry, is the people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It literally does not matter how much knowledge you step into a church with, how much knowledge you step into a community with, unless you start loving on them. Paul says you are the people who set an example 
You are the people that others are looking toward. But stop setting an example in knowledge because you're just making yourself look kind of dumb. You're building up in all of this amount of arrogance. And this doesn't matter. Instead, if you're going to set an example, set an example in love. Our Christian journey only begins with Christ. And over this Christian journey, we end up knowing more and more. We end up learning and gaining this knowledge more and more and more. However, that knowledge isn't what Christ really calls us to. Christ calls us to something fundamentally different. We're going to play a little exercise here. You know I've got to get y'all involved in the sermon now. So I'm going to ask you the, the hard question here. Can anyone list the first greatest commandment that Jesus says? That's all I hear. Yeah, love, yeah, so the first one, love the Lord your God. That's it. Love God. And Jesus says, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is like it, which is? Yes, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Against love there is no commandment. In other words, Jesus doesn't say the first and greatest commandment is learn as much as you can. It's cute and it's nice and it is helpful to know things, but the first and greatest and second commandment, which is like it, is love. And Paul is trying to get this into the community's mindset to say it's not about the rules, people. The rules are helpful, and they can be guides for us, but a transformed life in Christ doesn't lead us to more knowledge that helps us ascribe to the rules better. A transformed life in Christ leads us to love. And against love, there is no rule. This whole statement here about food sacrifice to idols, Paul ends up getting to the point of saying, we're going to talk about food sacrifices, but you're going to learn here it's not important. Other than, one, you understand that people are watching you. People are setting, are using you as an example. In fact, James, whenever James comes on the scene and writes his letter, he says, not many of you should become teachers because teachers are judged uh, with more scrutiny than others. Because people are watching the leaders. Leaders set an example. Those who have been Christians for a while longer set an example for the new Christians and set an example for the community. This is one of the complications of why Christianity has been tied with hypocrisy so often is because the people who have been Christians for so long end up ascribing far more to the rules that they can't even keep up with themselves rather than the love which is inspired by Christ through us. And so, here's my challenge for each of you. Set an example in love this year. We have 11 more months before us. And oh my goodness, who can say what's going to come? This time last year, we had very little knowledge about COVID-19 in our world. It had only just arrived in the U.S., 
We had no idea what was coming before us. We have a whole year of uncertainty and possibilities before us. And I'm willing to bet that we can make it a better year than 2020 if only we are willing to set an example in love. Friends, the world is going to be looking at the church through all of this. In fact, the world has been looking at the church through all of this. And in some points, the church hasn't been doing a very good job because we spend way too much time on the knowledge and rules part and not nearly enough time on the love and compassion part. So this year, simple challenge. Set an example in love. This is the culmination of the Christian journey. And I don't mean the culmination as in the end of the Christian journey, but on the Christian journey, this is the mountaintop. This is, this is, the, this is the point where it all comes together and it makes perfect sense. And you can see clearly everything. It's in love. The rules, the knowledge, that's all great. But where it all matters, for new Christians, for Christians who have been there for a while, and for the community surrounding them, it all makes a difference in love. Let us pray.